sermon scripture text this morning is Acts chapter 4, verses 32, through Acts chapter 5, verses 16. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard this, these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Let's try this again. I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll say, thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. May be seated. Let's open with, with uh, a quick word of prayer. Father, we ask that you will quiet our hearts, quiet our spirits, that we might receive by your Spirit what it is you want us to take from your Word. We confess that your Word is pure and marvelous, it is full of truth, and it's what leads us to life life that is eternal, never ending life that is for our souls. So please, please, Spirit, speak to us this morning. We, your servants, are listening. Amen. I want to begin with a question, and it's a rhetorical question. Don't answer it out loud. Think of it in your head. What do you think is the greatest threat to the American church or to this church? Think in your head. What do you think is the greatest, what is our greatest threat? 
it a word that comes to mind? Is it a series of words? Is it a whole sentence? I think that our text in Acts this morning will tell us something different than what might come into our minds when we think about what is most threatening to us as a church. Often, I think, as Christians, we see our greatest threat as something outside. So the church here is experiencing persecution. The religious leaders now have it out for the church, and we think, ah, that's, that's the greatest threat. So in America, we think of things like secularism, the growing secularism of our, of our nation. This is our greatest threat. Maybe we think of you know, potential erosion of religious liberty. That's the greatest threat for the church. Or just outright persecution. And those are real threats. We don't want to make light of those. But again, those are all things that are outside of us. And it's interesting, even when we talk about things that seem to be internal, they're never internal to our community. So I'm going to make an observation. And I'm, not, I'm not making a statement with this, any kind of evaluative statement. I'm not trying to offend anybody. But both Christians on the left and Christians on the right, when they call out things that they see as internal to the church, they're calling out things that are not internal to their church, right? So Christians on the right who call out what they see as kind of progressive ideology or wokeness in the church, that may sound like that's an internal thing in the church, but it's never their church that they think the problem is. Again, it's still churches out there that have that internal problem. And similarly, Christians on the left, when they call out patriarchy or Christian nationalism or whatever, again, it's never their brand of Christianity that they're concerned about. It's something out there. My point with all that, again, I hope no one's offended by that. I'm just making observations. But the point is that we always tend to think our greatest threat is something out there. Whatever that may look like. But here in Acts, I think what it's telling us that the greatest threat to the church is actually the moral compromise that happens within our own community. And the moral compromise here is specifically deceit and hypocrisy. And I think you got, I mean, we have to recognize this is the only threat that God acts immediately to address. There's persecution, God doesn't act immediately, but it's when it comes to moral compromise, that's when God sees fit to act in this supernatural way. I think that's telling us something about the severity of this moral threat to the church. And the reason that moral compromise is the greatest threat to the church is because moral compromise will do more to blunt our witness, more to blunt the power and effectiveness of our witness than any kind of external threat ever will. So our outline for us this morning is first effective witness. That's chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. Our second point is an internal threat diffused. That's chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. And the third point is continuing effective witness. That's chapter 5, verses 12 to 16. So first point, effective witness. Follow along again as I read um, chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
in kind of regular intervals throughout Acts, we get these snapshots of the church. Uh, pictures of what it looks like. Um, and so we you know, first see that in Acts 1 as the church is waiting for Pentecost and, and, and so on and so forth. And, and what's interesting is in, in the way that our text is set up this morning, just so we get kind of a 30,000 foot perspective, it begins with one of these snapshots. This is the church. It's beautiful. It's compelling. It's effective. And then you have this threat to the church. That's chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. And then you have the community continuing after the threat has been handled. That's how the flow of this story works. If beautiful community, there's a threat. Hear the ominous music, what's going to happen? God handles it. The church continues in this beautiful, effective community. And what's interesting is, 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 is this, this church, um, it says that their witness is very effective. People are coming to know Christ. And there's a reason for that. Now, we can both under-spiritualize evangelism and over-spiritualize it. We can under-spiritualize it when we say, look, it's just, you gotta have the right strategy in place. You gotta say the right words. You gotta have the right way to share the gospel. You, you, you know, all these things. If you do this, it'll work. Well, that's under-spiritualizing it. No one comes to faith in Christ apart from the work of God in their hearts. And you can give the most effective evangelistic message and it'll fall on stone hearts if God's not at work. On the other side, we can also over-spiritualize it. Like, it's just God. So it doesn't matter how you share the gospel. It doesn't matter where you share the gospel. It doesn't matter what your church looks like. The church here, like, there's a reason why people find it compelling. There's a reason that people in Jerusalem hear the message of the gospel as a powerful message. And it's because of the community that is behind that message. The community provides a kind of aid to the message of the gospel, the way they live life together. What, what it characterizes that community gives power to what they're saying. It's why it's an effective witness. This is what our first point is about. And so I want to look at some of these traits in this community that are, that are giving their, their gospel witness power, that are aiding this gospel witness. And the first one is that this is an effective witness that is aided by unity. You can look at verse 32. It says, uh, it says now the full number of those who are believed were of one heart and soul. They have the same passion the same love, they have the same vision for the church, they're there for the same reason. This is a common thread throughout Acts. Again, Acts 1 that describes the Christians waiting for Pentecost. It says they're gathered together, praying of one accord. They're praying for one thing. And in Acts 2, after Pentecost, again, it says they're all gathered together. Here in 32, it says they're of one heart and soul. And then after the, the threat to the church is handled, it again describes them as being together uh, in verse uh, 12 un, uh, in Solomon's portico. And when it says they're together, it's not just that they're in the same place, but they're together for one mind. Again, the unity is, is this major theme throughout the book of Acts. Here's the question, though. What are they unified over? I think a lot of times we think unity means, well, you just, you know, everyone talks the same, thinks the same, looks the same, acts the same. And that's not unity, that's, that, that's homogeneity. Unity suggests that there are things that are different, but you are coming to unity together. So what is their unity? Well, you know, I can tell you, it's not in their culture and, and even in their language. We're told in Acts 2 that there are Jews from all around the Mediterranean world who become part of this early church. So they're all Jewish, yes, but they're from different ethnicities. You have Jews from Africa, Jews from Italy, Jews from Spain, Jews from Turkey. They're bringing all the differences that come with cultural differences. If you've ever experienced culture shock, it's disorienting 
because you realize that there are basic assumptions we make in how we relate to people. Like even in, okay, get this. In, in America, we have, it's about 18 inches. It's considered your personal space. And if someone comes to you and steps inside that, we get very uncomfortable. There are other cultures, though, where that personal space is like six inches. And so you all of a sudden spend all day with people invading your personal space. And it's, you, so you have, you have a community of people with these basic differences like this. Cultural differences, cultural assumptions of what's the right way to raise your kids or what's the right way to work, what's the right way to speak or act. So their unity isn't in their culture. It's not even in their language. It tells us in chapter six that they were Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews. That means Jews that spoke Greek and Jews that spoke Hebrew, Aramaic. They didn't even necessarily share the same language. It wasn't unity over politics. Again, if you were a Hellenistic Jew, that means you spoke Greek. And typically, you had a very different understanding of how to relate to the Greco-Roman Empire than if you were a Jew in Palestine. Oftentimes, Hellenistic Jews viewed the Greco-Roman Empire and Greek culture as much less, much more of a neutral, you know, not, not a threat. You're not rejecting everything. I mean, you speak Greek at that point. Much more open to Greek influences and ideas. Or if you're a Hebraic Jew, you're like, no, no, no. The Roman Empire is evil. Different political understandings how to relate to the Roman Empire. Unity is not over politics. What is the unity of this church? Well, the unity in their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the mission that he had given them to bear witness to that resurrection. And that means that they're able to put up with real differences, <clears throat> cultural, political, linguistic differences, not because those differences weren't important, but because the fact of the resurrection was so much more important. because they believed in Jesus Christ that trumped everything else. That's the source of the unity. I think it's evidence of the sickness in American Christianity that we tend to split over political and cultural differences. We saw this recently, right? So you have people who are like, okay, that's cool. You believe God became a man, lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross for everyone's sin, and then he rose again, and he ascended to heaven, and uh, salvation is only by grace and faith through him. Great, you believe that. But what do you think about the 2020 election? It's like, are we kidding? Who cares about the 2020 election in view of the resurrection? It's not that that's not important. It's just that the resurrection is so much more important. Or it's like, sure, you believe in historic orthodoxy and all these things, right? But what do you think of critical race theory? What do you think of Christian nationalism? It's like, are we, we lost our minds. I don't want to be simplistic, right? These differences are real and they're important. But in comparison to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, hear me, hear every word I'm about to say, in comparison to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, these differences are insignificant. They just are. What a witness it would be in this time and place if we could have this kind of unity that was a unity in the midst of political differences, a unity in the midst of cultural differences because we worship the same Lord and we're committed to his mission. What, what, a, what a testimony it would be in this time of place if we could have churches where we have people who lean left politically and people who lean right 
politically, and they're together because their allegiance is to Christ far more than any policy proposal that Louisville or D.C. could put out. If we could have churches that have young and old together with all their generational differences because they follow the same Jesus. They've met the same Lord. Have churches where we have rich and poor and black and white and people from the east and people from the west and north and south and rural and city-fied folk all together because Jesus rose from the grave. And you know, if that's all we have in common, like shoot, I can work with that. This church is unified. By the way, I have seen that kind of unity before, that unity and diversity. It wasn't a generational unity, but it was a demographic unity. People of all kinds of backgrounds together in very close and intimate proximity. Do you want to know what that was? It was at nightclubs in Panama City Beach on spring break. I was not going to those nightclubs, okay? (laughs) True story, I was there on a mission trip to share Christ. But man, you had black kids and white kids and Asian kids and Hispanic kids, poor kids, rich kids, kids from college, kids not in college, Republicans, Democrats, all together in one place. Yeah, and, and you look at that and it breaks your heart and you just can't but thinking in American Christianity, we need to repent because sex and alcohol is frankly more unifying than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What a witness. I tell you what, you want to know what will preach to a watching world? If we had churches where you had people wearing Black Lives Matter shirts sitting next to people wearing MAGA hats, not because their differences aren't important, but because the resurrection trumps it, and it's more important. I tell you what, that would, that would, that would make a non-Christian stop and think, how did you get 50 people who differ in that, that great of way but yet are willing to come together because they both believe that Christ rose from the grave? That'd preach. That'd preach more effectively than any gospel presentation I could ever make. And that's what we see in this early church. That's why people are coming in droves to Christ because this is what defines this early church. This is the unity they have, not unity and homogeneity, but it's a unity in that they, they, they witness the same resurrection and they're committed to the same mission. So first, this effective witness is aided by this incredible unity. But second, effective witness that is aided by a profound generosity. It's interesting, this is a theme that's also picked up in Acts chapter two after Pentecost. The early Christians were profoundly generous. I explained before, I don't think we should read the early Christian church as some kind of socialist commune. I think it uses hyperbolic language, exaggeration. And I think verse 32 actually lays out what's really going on here. He says, uh, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. People still technically own stuff, legally own stuff, but they were so radically generous with it that they're like, this is mine. Whoever wants it, you can use it. I'm not gonna say you can't have it. And in fact, people weren't just like saying it in word. They're actually selling stuff, selling property to care for those in need in the church. To put a modern spin on that, it'd be like if we had a church where people were selling their second car or taking out a mortgage on their house or a second mortgage and then taking the money and bringing it to the church and saying, hey, this is for those who have need. Radical generosity. And then stunningly and oh, so beautifully, the result, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. Church of over 5,000 people in a culture where the vast majority of people were day laborers living day to day, massive financial need, and not a single person went without. 
doesn't mean that everyone was, you know, driving a Lexus, but it means there was no one who was going hungry, no one who didn't have a place to live, no one who didn't have clothes on their back. Again, that'll preach. That kind of a community, that'll preach. Radical generosity. It aids their witness when they speak, their words land with power because this is the fellowship that stands behind it. And of course, the result of this uh, unity and this radical, radical generosity is that their effective witness was characterized by power. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Again, is it any coincidence that when they preach, people confessed faith when this is the community that's behind it. You know, a miracle can wow people. It can draw a crowd. A talented preacher can draw a crowd. This kind of community, though, makes people stop and think. This is what makes them go home and lie awake at night and wonder, how do I make sense of this? Part of the application of this text for us is, you know, you know a, a, a necessary and basic component of our witness is actually going out and sharing the gospel. Going to our neighbors, our friends, our family members. Going to this neighborhood. We're going to start our, our neighborhood walks almost certainly in March. That's, that's, that's a basic and necessity, necessary component. But another basic and necessary component of our witness is the life we live together the discipleship we live together, the fellowship that we cultivate to look like this. That's what helps our witness be powerful. So this is the first point, an effective witness. And in the midst of this, we get to the second point, which is this internal threat. It's interesting, Luke is honest. Yeah, up to this point, the church is almost this like unicorn. It's like, this isn't, is this real? And Luke's honest, no, no, no. This, this, this church is made up of broken sin, sinners like our church is. People have the same struggles and the same sins and the same baggage they drag into the church. And so here we see hypocrisy and deceit. Uh, follow along as I read verses one and two. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. And he brought only a part of it and he laid it at the apostles' feet. There's a clear contrast here between Ananias and Sapphira, their gift, and what Barnabas does at the end of chapter four. Barnabas is the same Barnabas we hear about later in Acts, son of encouragement, and he very much reflects the character we see of the man later in Acts. He sells a piece of, uh, he sells a field, and in this act of beautiful and, and sacrificial humility and generosity, he lays it at the feet of the apostles. This is for the, the people who need it in our community. Beautiful. And then Ananias and Sapphira are mocking that beautiful act with their own deceit and hypocrisy. We see the deceit in, that, in verse two, it says Ananias, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. And then when Peter confronts him, Ananias, in verse three, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself? What's interesting is that phrase, keep back, has, has a financial overtone, an um, uh, 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 overtone of financial fraud. What did Ananias and Sapphira do wrongly? It wasn't that they didn't give the full price of the, of the land. That, in itself, there was nothing wrong with that. And that's what Peter says. He's like, look, when the land was yours, the property was yours, you could do what you, want, what you wanted with it. And once you sold the land, the proceeds were yours. They were at your disposal. So what did they do wrong? 
Well, again, that word they kept back, the same word they use when someone kind of skims off the top, what's not theirs, thinking no one will notice. Let's see, the best, the only way I can make sense of this is that there had been some kind of pledge that Ananias and Sapphira had entered into before this point. They had entered some kind of agreement or contract with the church saying, we will sell this property and give all the proceeds to the church. And so what that means is that when Ananias and Sapphira withhold money from what they sold, they're not just being deceptive, they're embezzling money from the church. They're stealing money that is not theirs because they've already pledged that. And that's why Peter says you kept back what wasn't yours. First class I took at Southern Seminary was in the history of the Baptists. It was actually quite interesting. You might be shocked to hear. Um, it was taught by Greg Wills, a great historian. And he, um, he shared this, uh, uh, um, he shared some his personal experiences. Somehow we got talking on church embezzlement. And he shared that he had been at multiple churches where the, the church treasurer was embezzling money from the church. Which even at the time made me think like, you've been at multiple churches where this has happened. Like maybe you should rethink how you pick your church. But anyways, um, and what he shared on his experience was that someone who is embezzling money from the church will never confess, and they will only confess as far as it's been demonstrated that they've done it. So they'll never come forward on their own, and when they're found out, they'll only confess whatever has been found out. So that embezzler may have embezzled $30,000, but if, if it's only been found out that they took 10, that's all they're gonna confess. And the reason for that is when someone gets to the point where they're willing to steal from the church, Deceit has so filled their heart, or as Peter says, Satan has so filled their heart, they're gonna deceive to the end. And this is the threat that's infiltrating the church. And not only is there deceit, but there's hypocrisy. Again, they're not only embezzling money from the church, but they're trying to pass off this act as an act of great sacrificial generosity, when in fact it's just not. They're trying to act like they're Barnabas, but they don't want to actually pay the cost of being sacrificially generous in this way. And then here's the point. This deceit and this hypocrisy is a greater threat to the life of the church than any external threat of persecution or violence. And the reason is because when hypocrisy and, and deceit are unchecked in the church, it destroys trust. When it's allowed to flourish in the church, it destroys what we need to grow into a, a, a genuine fellowship that loves and trusts each other. Because once there's hypocrisy, it taints everything. Now you're second guessing everything. So now when Barnabas comes to make his gift, you're cynical, you're like, what's, what's your angle? What are you hiding? More than anything religious leaders could ever do, this hypocrisy and this deceit is threatening the very ability of the church to function, and obviously it's affecting its ability, it's affecting the power it has in its witness. That's what we gotta see. It's not just that you know, the church is gonna do badly if they're hypocrites. The gospel will be blunted. That's the burden in this text. All these multitudes coming to faith, they'll all be lost. Again, you know, as, as scary as external persecution may look, we can proclaim Christ in a jail cell. We can proclaim Christ walking to the gallows. And that's what Stephen does in Acts 6. The only thing a hypocritical church proclaims is its own eulogy. This is the greatest threat. And this is why God steps in and carries out an unusual act of judgment 
verses 5 to 11. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and they wrapped him up and they carried him out and they buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Peter said, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and they buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. God carries out an unusual act of judgment not unusual in its severity, but unusual in its immediacy. It happens right away. The Bible tells us that God is withholding judgment out of his mercy to allow people to come to salvation. But that's the severity of God's judgment on sin. It's just that he brings it about immediately. Now, for many of us, myself included, there's a part of me that's troubled when you see this. Some of us might even feel offended and in fact, there's, there's been commentators who, who tried to explain this away, saying, no, this is really Peter. And Peter's just being really like, aggressive in his confrontation of Ananias. And Ananias is kind of elderly and had a panic attack and died of a heart attack. It's Peter's fault. And then somehow the exact same thing happens to Sapphira. It's just nonsense. This is God. This is God doing this work. And once we've accepted this as God doing this, there are three applications we can take from it. I'm getting these from John Stott. Wonderful help. As a, as a Christian thinker. But first application from this is that sin is a serious, serious matter. All right, not to put too fine of a point on it, but God hates sin. And even more, he hates hypocrisy and he hates falsehood. Of course, God is a great God of mercy and compassion, abounding in steadfast love. And in a broken and humble sinner, coming to God for salvation will never be cast out, ever, period. But God hates hypocrisy, and he hates falsehood. And that's why I've heard it said that an atheist may in fact be closer to God than a religious hypocrite. Why is that? Well, uh, again, for us to come to God requires honesty about who we are, about the sin in our lives, about our desperate need of salvation. And a religious hypocrite is doing the opposite. They're hiding who they really are, and they're projecting something they're not. Whereas at least an atheist is being honest. God hates hypocrisy. Sin is a very serious thing. Second thing we can take from this is, is the importance of seeking a clean conscience. Paul, later in Acts, in Acts 24, 16, he's defending himself before Felix under trial, and he says, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. John talks about this in 1 John. He says, walk in the light. Walk in such a way, live your life in such a way that you have nothing to hide from God and nothing to hide from other people. Your life's an open book. You're confessing sin that's there. You're not living in such a way that, that you're one way on Monday and another way on Sunday. You're one way in front of your Christian friends, another way in front of your non-Christian friends. You're walking in the light. There was a revival that swept through parts of Africa in the 1920s and 1930s. It's called the East African Revival. I'd never heard of this until I studied this text. Um, it swept through what are now the countries of 
Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, and Burundi. And what was really cool about this revival is that although there were Western missionaries involved, it was primarily an indigenous revival. It was spearheaded by Africans. It was led by Africans. It was carried out by Africans. And the African leaders in this early uh, African revival preached the importance of a clean conscience strongly, again and again and again, live your life in such a way. And, and they would use this metaphor. They'd say, live as a house without ceilings or walls. What a great picture. Live as a house has no ceiling. You're not, you're not trying to hide anything from God. I mean, what a, what a silly idea to begin with. We, we can't hide anything from God. But a house without walls, you have nothing to hide from people. Not that you'll never sin, it just means when you sin, you confess it. But you're not living a double life or one alive. What great desire for Christians. And again, that'll preach. Church full of people who are striving to live with the house without ceilings or walls, walking in the light. Again, we see the, the importance of seeking, of living a life to seek a clean conscience before God and before people. Because that's not what Ananias and Sapphira were doing. And then lastly, we see the importance of church discipline as both necessary for the health of the church, but also for the effectiveness of the church's witness. Again, God hates sin. And if we live as a church that kind of works at sin, doesn't take it seriously, that allows habitual, unrepentant sin to fester, it's not only going to destroy the people caught in sin, but it's going to destroy our fellowship. It's going to destroy the effectiveness of our witness. And this is why, at times, churches will remove someone from membership who are engaged in unrepentant, habitual sin. It's not because we're being mean. It's not because we're being vindictive. It's because God, it's because it's God hates sin. And the well-being of the church and, 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 the, and the effectiveness of our witness is, is in the balance. Now, there's a, there's a balance we have to achieve when it comes to church discipline. That's typically what you refer to when, when, when you have to remove someone from membership. It's called church discipline. There's a balance there. Um, I grew up in strong evangelical churches, um, typically larger churches, you know, churches that preach the Bible. I never saw someone removed from membership until I was 30, and I was at Sojourn. Um, these... <laughs> So, so we have one extreme, which, you know, most American churches don't do any, any kind of discipline. You know, they're never going to remove somebody. That, that's one extreme. And I'll tell you what, a church without a process for discipline is a playground for bullies and abusers. Because men know they can dominate their wives and their kids, and ain't no one going to do anything about it. Abusers can abuse knowing if they're found out, well... What's the church going to do? They'll just go to another church. A church without processes for discipline is a playground for bullies. But there's another extreme we can go to. If, if, if one extreme is no church discipline ever, the other extreme is, again, what I read in, in my History of the Baptist class. George, uh, Greg Wills wrote a book on Baptists in the 18th century in Georgia, and he went through their member minutes, and it listed how many people they removed from membership every member meeting. And I did some quick math at the end of the book, and I divided how many were removed from membership based on, you know, by how many members there were. And I realized Georgia Baptists were removing like 30% of their, of their churches every year. That's one extreme, okay? Like, we don't have to go to that extreme either, all right? John Stott, again, he has many helpful things to say. He has a very helpful rule here. He says, it is a good general rule that secret sins should be dealt with secretly, private sins privately, 
and only public sins publicly. If someone sins against you privately, they're rude to you, we don't need to do church discipline for that. Go confront them and work it out. Um, But if someone does something publicly, if someone leaves their spouse and kids and takes off with a lover, that's a public sin. It's in the public view of the church that has to be dealt with publicly. If someone steals money from the church, that's a public sin. It has to be dealt with publicly. It can't be private. So again, deceit and hypocrisy threaten the very health and effectiveness of the church. But Christ, through his act of judgment, protects the church. And what's the result? This is our third and final point. Continued effective witness. Look at verses 12 to 16. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. What's the outcome? When God steps in and does this act, well, it's continued powerful unity and fellowship and continued powerful evangelism and effective evangelism. But now it's a fellowship that's also characterized by godly fear. Because again, yes, God is gracious and compassionate, and he will never cast out one who comes to him in brokenness of spirit, but he is a holy God, and he hates sin. And that led to the church both being held in high esteem. People held them in high esteem, but again, verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes, both men and women. The greatest threat against us, Vine Street Baptist Church, is not an external threat. It's not a loss of religious liberty. It's not the secularism in our culture. It's not who is in the White House or who is not in the White House. The greatest threat to our church is this internal threat of hypocrisy and deceit. It's the sin that goes in deep as our very hearts go. The greatest threat to our church is us. The fact that from our hearts there's just storehouses of pride and envy and jealousy and anger and lust. Just no end to these. So what's our hope? Well, our hope is that Jesus died for sinners. Not just the righteous. He really died for sinners. That when Jesus that because Jesus died, his blood can cleanse us from any stain. And because he then rose again from the grave, he conquered death, he conquered sin, and he can free you from any slavery to any sin. Sin is no more, is no longer inevitable in the life of a Christian because Jesus lives. That's our hope. That's why the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the single most unifying fact for a Christian. Because sinners as broken as me and as you can be forgiven and transformed and made into new people. Finally, Jesus is risen. He's He's alive. He lives right now. He's calling you to himself. 
He has a purpose for you. It may not involve wealth and riches and comfort and pleasure, but it's good and it's wonderful if you'll give yourself to him. He has blood that can cover any sin. His death can conquer any struggle you might have. You know, for some of us, the application of this, ser- of this sermon might be, there's some sin we need to confess. Maybe there's a sin we need to confess to our spouse that they don't know about, or just a sin that we've been engaging in that we need to confess to a brother or sister in Christ so that we might live as a house without ceiling or walls. I have nothing to hide. I just want you to know that Jesus calls you to himself. And he'll cleanse you. He'll forgive you. Let us never forget the truth of Psalm 32, one. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, because Jesus died and rose again. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, may you make us a church that is without ceilings or walls. That we will pursue a clean conscience before you and before other people. Because you have already cleansed us, you've already forgiven us, you have fought a battle we could never fight and you've won it for us. And all we need to do is accept that and run after you with all our hearts. May we do that. If any in this room don't know you, may, they, may you give them the gift of faith. May they know the peace that comes from peace with you through Jesus. We pray this in his holy name. Amen.